You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, so if you want to go ahead and grab a Bible, that would be helpful to have that out and open on your lap. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4 is where we're going to be. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And while you're turning there, if you just have kind of stumbled in today, this is your first time to be at Stonegate, you have stumbled into the middle of a set of sermons that we are calling issues. So we have been tackling all sorts of crazy stuff over the last couple of months. So we have hit singleness, we've hit issues like gluttony, um, divorce, free marriage, those sorts of things. Last week we talked about homosexuality, and this week we are going to talk about the issue of mission, mission or evangelism. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is where we're going to be. You can go ahead and, yep, there we go. Let there be light. There you go. So now we can see 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And so as you're turning there, uh, let me just preface by, uh, by just taking a second to look back over. Really all of our lives have these little moments in it where you look back and you realize, um, and most of the time you see this kind of post that moment, that that little season of life was a defining moment. You look back and realize that that season of your life really set the trajectory um, for the future of your life. One of those moments for me was kind of in my early 20s. Um, when I was in college, that was a, a real season, you know, that, that really just set the, the kind of the future course of my life and the future ministry that I had no idea existed at the time. It set the course for all of that. And so one of the things that was happening in that little season of life for me was the Lord had really just unlocked in me a real desire and want of him that got translated into taking the Bible and reading it a lot. And I'm reading passages and places in the Bible I'd never read before. I've been a Christian for a while, and I just never read these places. One of those places that I began to read that really, I mean, there's so many things embedded into it that have really shaped ministry life for me and, and life as I know it, um, is Romans 9 and 10. Those have been some, a couple of chapters that have just shaped so, so much about how I think about God and life and ministry. And uh, in particular, I, there's a lot of things embedded into those, those couple of chapters that did that, but one in particular was the opening couple of verses of Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, the first five verses, it goes like this. This is Paul writing, and he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I have, I have not, I, you know, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now, before we keep reading, let's just think about what he's saying there. He is saying, there is something, my soul, man, there is like a deep soul sadness that I'm feeling. There is like a deep anguish in my soul that is hard to deal with. Now, before we keep reading, think about that in your own life. Have you ever had moments where you have just had like a deep soul sadness? Man, just an ache in your soul, an anguish in your soul that you just can't put a lid on. Have you ever had those moments? Now, think over the last couple of years, what has caused those moments in your life? Think in the last two, three, maybe even four or five years, what has caused that sort of deep soul sadness in you? That sort of ache in your soul moment. What has caused that in you? Now, life in a fallen world can cause that from a million different angles. There's a lot of things that could and should produce a deep soul sadness in followers of Jesus. But I want you to ask yourself the question, What has caused Paul's deep soul sadness here in this text? Has it caused you a deep soul sadness over the last several years of your life? Okay, there's many things that could cause a deep soul sadness, but I want you to ask this specific question. What has caused Paul's deep soul soul sadness? Has it ever caused you one? Or over the last two or three years of your life, has this been the source of like a a deep anguish in your your soul? Has it produced that? Now, Now let's read on here. This is what produced this deep soul sadness for Paul. Verse three, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. Now he's saying, I I wish that I could be cut off, why? For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites and to them belong adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, and to them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. Paul is looking at his own fellow countrymen, the Israelites, the Hebrews. He's looking at those guys and he's saying, I, I, my soul is so in anguish within me. 
that there is such a deep soul sadness within me that I'm looking at my own people and I am saying, I would rather be cut off from Christ forever if they could get in. I have such a deep ache that they are cut off from Christ. It's such a deep, unquenchable sadness in me that in this moment, I would take being cut off if they could be brought in. Now you get to, to Romans chapter 10, the first verse of Romans chapter 10. Paul says something similar. He says, brothers, he's talking to his kinsmen. He's talking to the Israelite brothers. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I mean, what is creating this deep soul sadness, this ache in his soul, is he's looking at people that he loves and they're not in Christ. And it has floored him. It has devastated him. It has created in him this deep, deep, deep anguish of soul. Now, the reason that this particular issue is, is being you know, talked about in the middle of this set of sermons called Issues is because I think this is an issue in the church of Jesus Christ. And, and here's the way I, I think I would present the issue. This sort of a deep soul sadness, this sort of an ache, this sort of an anguish for conversions that I think would, be re, that would reflect the heart of God, the heart of God that is seen in the dying love of Jesus for the sake of conversions. This sort of deep ache, this sort of deep soul sadness for conversions, I think is strangely absent in the church of Jesus Christ. I'm gonna say that one more time. I think this deep soul sadness, this deep anguish, this heartbrokenness over a lack of conversions, over people being cut off from Jesus, it seems to me to be strangely absent in way too much of the church of Jesus Christ. And can we just have a moment here as a church family and just all just recognize this together? We don't want to be a church absent of that ache. We don't want to be that. We want to be a church that has that deep ache planted deep in our soul. That, that sort of unquenchable, unsatisfied ache. We, we want that in our church family. I mean, don't you want to see hundreds and thousands of people meet Jesus I mean, go back a couple of weeks ago. We did a baptism service. Was it not unbelievable? Amen. We did a baptism service where we are seeing the scandalous nature of grace. We are seeing grace rescue people who don't deserve rescue. Like us all, they don't deserve rescue. And we're seeing the scandalous nature of grace. Wouldn't it be great if we just had to take a pause on like a month or two of services just so we could do a lot of those? I mean, don't we all want that? I am praying that today the Lord would just be gracious enough to visit us in such a way where that sort of deep ache, that deep, just unquenchable sort of soul sadness would be planted, replanted in our church family. That there would be a deep longing to see people meet Jesus here. That we would have that sort of deep longing for that. Now, to, to do that, and I'm just praying the Lord might use 2 Corinthians chapter 4 to, to do that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to get to see a picture of conversion, what it means for a person to be converted, what it means for Jesus to rescue someone. And then we're going to get to see God's means for that conversion. So, so we're going to get to see God saving, and then how God goes about saving, what that looks like for God to, to save. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is where we're going to be. So it starts off with a picture of conversion. This is where we start. It's this picture of conversion. So if you're following along, 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 1. It would be helpful if you could read along with us here. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, here's what Paul's about to do in verses 3 and 4. He's going to describe our condition before God pre-Jesus. So what it looks like to be cut off from Christ. Here's our condition before God. Verses 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. You might just underline that word perishing. To those who are perishing. In their case, here's another phrase you want to underline. The God of this world 
has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Paul is he's unpacking what does it mean to be cut off from Christ? What does it mean to be, um, you know, to, to not be in Christ? What does that look like? What is our condition apart from Jesus? And he uses several phrases to describe that. The first one is at the end of verse three. He says that we are perishing. We are perishing. Now, in the Bible, um, the word perishing is used in a couple of different ways. One way it's used is to refer to just the, like dying, like we are about to physically die. This is like in Mark 4 where the disciples are in the boat with Jesus, and the storm has come. Jesus is asleep on the, the cushion down in, in the boat, and they wake Jesus up, and they're like, Jesus, don't you care that we're perishing? We are about to die here. So, so it could mean physical death. That's one of the ways perishing is used, is used in the Bible. Um, the second way the word perishing is used in the Bible is to relate to or to describe this spiritual or eternal death of being forever cut off from God. This is like in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, will not be forever cut off from God, but have everlasting life. So everlasting life is on one hand, perishing is on the other hand. So perishing could mean th this idea of, of being forever cut off with God. Now that is what Paul is talking about in verse three. He is not talking about physically dying. He is talking about pre-Christ, before we're in Christ, we are perishing. We are on the way to a hopeless eternity. That's the direction and the trajectory of our life. Perishing means that we'll be eternally cut off from the presence of God. That's what he's talking about here. That when a person dies apart from Jesus, they're going to spend forever, and this just makes me shudder to think about this, in a real place called hell. That's what the Bible calls it. A real place called hell created for real people who will forever live under the displeasure of God. Now, does that not just make you just kind of your spine just shudder to think about that? I mean, God is not playing games in this. this. The stakes could not be higher in this. It is either everlasting life or it's perishing. I just think about that. It's everlasting life on one hand and it's perishing. And these people have names. People who are cut off from Jesus are not faceless people. They have names. They're in your neighborhood. They're in my neighborhood. They're, they're in my family. They're in your family. They're in your workplace. They're people I love. They're people you love. And by, the Bible is saying, apart from Jesus, they are forever cut off with God, from God. Now just, can we just have a moment to feel that? And just allow the Lord to remind us of that this morning? I mean, this, I mean the stakes just could not, it's, it's, either, it's either the forever welcome and warm affection of God for all eternity, or it's the forever displeasure of God for all eternity. Those are the only two options for people. Just feel that for a minute. It's the only two options. Now in verse four, Paul goes on to describe our progression of problems. Verse three, he's saying, here's our condition apart from Jesus. We are cut off from God. We are perishing. But then in verse uh, four, he unpacks why that is. Why are we perishing? And he walks us through a progression of problems in verse four. He ex he's explaining why are we perishing? So in verse four, he says, in their case, the God of this age or the God of this world has blinded the minds. So if you've got one phrase, God of this world, the second phrase is blinded the minds. Fourth phrase of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now let's just take that in, in parts, that verse in parts, and work backwards from it in those three key phrases. So why are men perishing? Here's the reason that men are perishing. Paul says because they are unbelievers. They're, they're perishing because they are persisting in their unbelief. They're not believing the good news of Jesus. That's why we perish. It's a refusal to believe in the good news of Jesus. Now, what's the good news of Jesus? The good news of Jesus that is in spite of us throwing the first punch at God, in spite of us firing the first shot at God, in spite of our refusal to submit to God, in spite of our, our active disobedience, in spite of our not just like, you know, not having God, but in spite of our not wanting God, in spite of our declaring war upon God, God has done whatever it takes to remove the obstacles between us and him. So he has sent his son, Jesus, to live the life that we could not live. I mean, just think about this. In every moment that you have ever felt in your life, 
hear this. Jesus perfectly obeyed the commandments of God. He died on the cross for our sin. So not only did he live the life that we couldn't live, he died the death that we should have died. On the third day, he rose from the dead, showing God's power over Satan, sin, and death, so that all of those who put their faith in Jesus will be forever reconciled to God. They'll be adopted into the family of God. God will look at them and no longer count them as enemies, but count them as sons and daughters. He'll give them the Holy Spirit and commission them as missionaries. That's pretty good news, isn't it? That we can go from enemy to son of God in his family. That is great news. And the only thing between us and that is our unbelief. Just a refusal to, to, to believe. Now, in our culture, the word believe has to be clarified. Anytime I say the word believe in Jesus or the phrase believe in Jesus, I just know that so many people in our culture hear that through a very um, firmly fixed grid that says this. If I just agree with the facts about Jesus, then I have believed in Jesus. As long as I agree that there was a man named Jesus, he lived perfectly, he died on the cross for, my, for our sin, he rose from the dead on the third day, then I have believed. Biblical belief is bigger than the agreement of facts. It's not less than that, but it is so much more than that. Biblical belief or biblical faith is when these facts that we agree with, we get a realizing sense of those facts. They land on our heart with, with vibrancy and life so that it causes us for the first time to look at Jesus and actually love him. So now, now we actually love him. And then in, in a moment of loving him, we turn from our sin and throw our life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's biblical belief. It is bigger than the agreement of facts. We have kind of classically um, illustrated that with the illustration from Jonathan Edwards, an old Puritan pastor of a few hundred years ago. He used the illustration of honey. If you've been around here, you've heard this illustration many times because I want it to be embedded into the culture of our church. When he's talking about belief, he's saying that there is a difference between knowing about honey and tasting honey. There's a difference in a person coming to you and saying, um, have you, you know, honey, let me describe it to you. It's got this thick golden texture. They even put a jar in front of you and they talk about its sweetness. And when it hits your tongue, it's just like the best thing. I mean, they, they just walk you through the whole thing about honey. And in one sense, you could, you could in that moment say, I believe in honey. I, I, I agree with the facts about it. But it is a whole different thing the moment honey hits your tongue and explodes on your taste buds. And it's that that is biblical belief. It's not less than knowing about honey, but it is the moment when, when the good news of Jesus lands in your soul with such force and such a realizing sense that your life is forever altered. That's faith. That, that's biblical belief. And Paul is saying the only reason we are perishing in our sin is because of our unbelief. That's why we're perishing. But then he goes on and he answers the question, well, why don't we believe? So, so if we're perishing because we don't believe, why is it that we don't believe? His answer in verse four is because we're blind. Why don't we believe? Because we can't, that's why. Because we can't see what we need to see to actually believe. That because of sin, we can't see the wonder of Jesus and just the amazing nature of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we can't believe we're blinded to these things. We can't see these things. See, it does, being blinded does not mean that you can't sit in a service like this and hear the good news of Jesus and comprehend the good news of Jesus. See, being blind doesn't mean that you can't do those things. Being blind means that you can hear those things and comprehend those things without ever being affected by those things. See, being blind means, if we go back to the honey illustration, being blind means that our taste buds have been so deformed by sin that when the good news of the gospel lands in our soul, we have no appetite to love it. That's what being blind means. So, so why are we perishing? Because of our unbelief. Why do we not believe? Because we're blind. Then Paul goes on. Why are we blind? Why, why are men blind? Answer, it's the work of Satan. Welcome to the goal of Satan in the universe to keep Jesus obscured from people. Paul says it like this. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. See, when we're talking conversions, when we're talking people meeting Jesus, we are talking about spiritual warfare. That's what we're talking about. That when we're talking about praying for people to meet Jesus, being used by God for people to meet Jesus, we are saying 
Lord, would you put me on the front lines of spiritual war where bullets fly and flesh is torn? Will you put me right there? See, conversions take place in the context of spiritual warfare. That's where all of these things happen. And Paul gives us a glimpse of what that warfare looks like. He says, "In, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And here's what blinding looks like. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is what, this is what Satan is doing everywhere. In your neighborhood, in your family, with your children, with your mom and dad, with everyone around you that you love and you're praying, they would meet Jesus. Satan is about obscuring Jesus to them. He's about painting Jesus with drab and drear colors where he just won't seem that great to them. That's what he's doing. He's trying to to mush down the amazement of the good news of Jesus. That is the work of Satan in this world. How can I obscure the greatness of grace, the beauty of Jesus? That is the primary aim of Satan in this universe. This is what Satan is up to. Now, so let me just do a summary of our condition. Here's our condition pre-Jesus. We're perishing under the wrath of God. Why? Because we persist in our unbelief. Why do we persist in our unbelief? Because we're blind. Why are we blind? Because it's the active work of sin and Satan in our lives. That's our condition. Now look at verse six. Here's the cure for our condition. That's our condition pre-Jesus. It's a hopeless condition over there. But in and of yourself, you have no hope of getting out of that place. But look at verse six. Here's the cure for our condition. For God. Here's our condition, but now God's about to do something that only God can do. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's our cure. So if our condition is just hopeless over here, trapped in our unbelief and blindness and sin, here is the cure for our condition. It's God in a moment of grace, sovereign grace. It's God shining a light into our hearts. That is the only hope for our condition. It is that God Almighty would take a light and he would illuminate what's dark in us. Ephesians 2 talks about it in terms of of it's God taking our dead, unresponsive heart and breathing life into those hearts where now for the first time they start to beat for the things of God. It is God doing that. Jeremiah talks about it in terms of God taking a heart of stone that's just rock hard to the things of God and making that a heart of flesh where it's responsive to God. Second Corinthians is talking about it in terms of God taking our blindness and wiping the scales from our eyes so that we can actually see Jesus for who he is. That's the cure for our condition. It's God sovereignly shining a light in our heart so that the sweetness of Jesus is now felt in our soul. When the goodness of the gospel lands in our heart, it explodes with life and vibrancy and it sets off this chain reaction. It fundamentally changes us and sets off this chain reaction where we're seeing the horror and hopelessness of our sin, the hope we have in Jesus. And it produces in us this willingness to to let go of all of this as we run and throw our life upon Jesus. That's what it does when the Lord shines this light into our heart. We actually become responsive to Jesus. We actually begin to love Jesus. Our appetites, our desires begin to change inside of us. That's the cure. Now, before we go on, let let me just take a moment to remind us. God loves to do this. God loves to rescue people out of blindness. He loves to take spiritually dead hearts and make them alive. God loves to do, it's not just that God saves, it's not just that God rescues, it is that God loves to save. He takes great delight in rescuing. And if you need evidence of just how much God delights to rescue us in our blindness and sin, all you need to do is look upon the dying love of Jesus. That is God's evidence of just how much he loves to rescue. Now, let's just take a moment to apply this in a couple of different ways. One is to those in the room that you would know that if, if somebody had the, just sat down across from you and they, they had the conversation, are you perishing in your sin? You would know t- this morning that the answer is yes to that, that you are perishing in your sin. 
that the, that the God of this world has blinded your eyes, that you just can't see Jesus in a way that would produce desire in you for him and an appetite for him in you. But this morning, God is beginning to shine a little light into your soul. God is beginning to awaken something in you that says, I think I want Jesus. I've never felt this way about him before. I've heard this maybe even a million times. I've just never seen him like this. If that's you, that is the sovereign work of God shining something in your soul. And it would be the most foolish decision you could possibly make to walk out of this room without nailing that down. I mean, this is like a moment where God is inviting you. Can we make this deal this morning? Could I take all of your sin from you? Would you be willing to let me have your sin? And if we would humble ourselves and allow Jesus to take our sin, then the Lord says, and you know what I'll give you in exchange for that? I'll give you Jesus' perfect record of righteousness. Can we make that deal so that from this point forward, every time I'll ever see you, I'll see you through the lens of my perfect son. I'll adopt you into my family. No longer an enemy. You can be a son or daughter of mine. Could we make that deal? I mean, would we not be foolish to walk out of here without taking that deal this morning? And for those in the room that, that that moment has happened, there's been that decisive line and you've stepped across that decisive line. You've pushed your chips in with Jesus and he's rescued you. Can we just have a moment together of just being freshly amazed at that miracle? If you're, if you're in Christ in this room, you're not in Christ because of you. You're in Christ because of a miracle of grace that's happened in you. That's why. Can we just be freshly amazed at that? That the Lord has taken your heart that was blind, that was dead, unresponsive to the things of God. He's taken that heart and he's breathed life into it so that you would look at Jesus with wonder and amazement and with appetite and say to him, yes, I'm in. Can we just be freshly amazed at that? I love how Charles Spurgeon, probably my favorite guy in church history, I love how he encourages this. He says, let me, let me refresh your memories with your calling. Let's just go back there for a moment. Was there not a day the memories of which you fondly cherish when you were called from death to life? Fly back now to the day and hour if you can. And if not, light upon the season thereabouts when the great transaction took place. When that moment, when, when you went from being in your sin to being in Christ. When that great transaction took place in which you were made Christ forever by the voluntary surrender of yourself to him. In looking back, does it not strike you that your calling must have been of divine origin? That it wasn't because of you, but it was because of the work in you from God, God shining a light in you. How gracious that calling must have been since it came to you from God. It came to you irresistibly and came to you with such a personal demonstration. What grace there was. What was there in you to suggest a motive why God should call you? Answer, nothing. It's not because God looked at you and said, there's a varsity player, let's, let's go for him. He's dealing with nothing but JV in this room, right? What, what, what was there in you to suggest a motive why God should call you? Oh, beloved, we can hardly ask you that question without the tear rising in our own eye. Should not this calling of ours evoke most intense gratitude and most earnest love? Oh, if he had not called thee, where would we be right now? Think about that. Where would you be right now had Christ not have called you? Can we just be freshly amazed at that? Man, I, re I remember for me, I was 13 years old in the seventh grade. I was in a small country church. And the Lord looked down in a moment and shined a light in my heart. And for the first time in my life, I felt an appetite for God. And the Lord saved me. Man, where would I be apart from that? Now I want you to look at verse five. This is our condition. That's, you know, we're, we're perishing in our sin, in our unbelief, in our blindness. We're captive to the God of this world. Verse six, here's the cure. God sovereignly shines a light in our soul, awakens in us a desire for God. Now I want you to look at verse five. This is God's means in conversion. 
God's means and conversion. I want you to look at what stands between our condition pre-Jesus, perishing, blinded in our sin, our condition pre-Jesus, and on the other side, God's sovereign work of shining a light into our soul. So verses three and four, our condition. Verses six, this is the cure. And then you get verse five. Verse five says, right, sandwiched between the condition and the cure, sandwiched between that, verse five, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but what we proclaim is Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. In between our condition and God's cure are men and women proclaiming the good news of Jesus. It's God's people proclaiming Jesus. That is God's means of saving. Now just sail on that, think on that. Here's our condition. We're hopeless in our sin. On the other side, here's God's sovereign cure. He shines a light into people's hearts, awakening in them a desire for the things of God. And right in between those two, he's showing us his normal means of doing his sovereign work. And his normal means of doing his sovereign work are men and women as imperfect as you and me, opening our mouth and talking about Jesus. That's how God does it. It is, it is the people of God speaking and talking about the great news of Jesus. That's what stands in between these two things, sandwiched between these two great realities of our condition and the cure are people like you and me opening up our mouths and talking, sharing Jesus. That is God's means of this sovereign work of shining a light. This is God's means of God wiping the scales from people's eyes. This is the means where God takes blindness and gives sight where God takes a dead, unresponsive heart and brings it to life. The means of that are people like you and me talking about Jesus. You know, I, I think in essence, verse five is an invitation from the Lord. It's an invitation that goes like this. People are perishing. Here's the cure, my sovereign light. I wanna invite you into the work of that. I'm gonna save, but I'm not gonna save by me just snapping my fingers. I'm gonna save with you. I'm gonna use you to rescue and redeem. I'm gonna use you opening your mouth, befriending people who are far from God, praying for people who are far from God, and then opening your mouth and talking about Jesus. And you're gonna to get to sit there and watch me in those moments rescue people. You're gonna to get to watch me save people, redeem people, take people out of perishing and into everlasting life. You're gonna to get to watch me do that and I'm gonna use you for that. Amen. Is that not amazing? Amen. It's as if God is inviting us. Hey, why don't you speak and I'll shine a light? Hey, why don't you witness and I'll do the work for you? Why don't we enter into that sort of a relationship? Would you be good for that? Would you come in with me for that? That God's offering us that invitation. So I want to end by just giving some application. Five prayers for our church family. Five prayers for our church family. Here are the five prayers. And I'm just going to invite you to be praying this for our church. That this would be true. That the Lord would do this in our church family. Five prayers. Prayer number one. That the Lord would give us a renewed ache for the perishing. I mean, that the Lord would put in us a deep soul sadness. That when, if we were asked the question in a year from now, what, is, what has been one of the causes of a deep soul sadness in you that we, along with Paul in Romans 9 and Romans 10, could answer? I have people who I want to meet Jesus, but they don't know Jesus yet. And I just can't get over it. I have this deep ache in me that I just can't, I can't push down that the Lord would give us that sort of an ache. Earlier this year, I read the biography of a, of a man named George Whitfield. He's one of the primary people that the Lord used in the great awakenings of a few centuries ago in America, England, and, and among other places. And it's really just an amazing story of, of God using people just like this. That the, you're, you're watching a story play out of the means of a person opening his mouth and the Lord using him to save and then one of the most convicting things about reading his biography was watching the deep ache he had for people who didn't know Jesus. 
It was, it was so encouraging on one hand and so convicting on the other. And this is just like one of the many samples I could give you out of his biography. But in one moment, he, he said this in his journal. He said, oh, that I could do more for Jesus. Oh, that I was a flame of pure and holy fire and had a thousand lives to give in the dear Redeemer's service. And then he goes on. The sign of so many perishing souls affects me so much and makes me long to go, if possible, from pole to pole to proclaim redeeming love. Man, I'm just praying that we would start talking like that, that we would start feeling like that. That the Lord put that sort of a deep ache in us. I said this a minute ago, Charles Spurgeon is one of my favorite people in church history. And the Lord used him for the salvation of just thousands and thousands of lives. And, and he had the same deep soul ache. Look at that, listen to how he says it. At one point, he says it like this. If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. Man, I'm praying for a church that feels that way. I mean, if they're going to be damned, let them leap over to hell, you know, to hell over our dead bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let no one go there unwarned or unprayed for. Man, that the Lord would give us that sort of an ache. That he would put right in the middle of this church family that sort of an anguish and soul sadness. So let's pray that the Lord renew an ache for the perishing. Secondly, let's pray that the Lord would renew urgency for the perishing. Not just that we would feel a burden and an ache, but an urgency. Now I want you to listen just real closely to what I'm about to say. If hell is real and, and eternal forever and terrible, all of which the Bible in clear language says yes to. If that is true, and the only thing separating people in our neighborhoods, workplaces, families, friendships, if the only thing separating people who don't know Jesus from that reality is the thin line of death, that should do something to us. That should put in us such a deep urgency. Not like a, we've got years to kind of like get around to these things. That should put in us a deep, deep urgency. I mean, that should affect us, shouldn't it? I mean, if that's true, if hell is really that bad, eternal, and terrible, all of which the Bible affirms, and death is that thin line that separates people from that reality, man, that, that should alter everything about our lives. And I'm just praying that the Lord would give us the ability to see with that sort of clarity that, that maybe, just maybe, the Lord would take us right up to the edge of eternity where we could see these two realities, perishing or everlasting life with God with clarity, and it would produce such an effect upon our life that we would leave here feeling urgency, deep urgency. So prayer number one, a renewed ache for the perishing. Prayer number two, a renewed urgency for the perishing. Prayer number three, a renewed hope for the perishing. A renewed hope. When a deep kind of that anguish and, and ache is combined with urgency and is combined with a deep hope that the Lord actually loves to save and can, I think it unlocks a missionary kind of zeal in us. When urgency is combined with ache, combined with hope, it unlocks something in us. And I just want to remind us, God is able to save. Like the person writing 2 Corinthians 4 is probably the most unlikely convert on the face of the planet. He would be akin to an ISIS fighter. And the Lord comes down and rescues him in the middle of him killing Christians. And if God can save Paul, God can save anyone. Amen. Can we just have some hope about that? Now, just look at your own life for a second. For those who you are desiring and hoping that the Lord would save, have you given up on any of them? Just stop praying for them. Stop being hopeful that the Lord could save. I have no idea that the Lord's timetable. The Lord's not under our control, right? So I have no idea of the, the what's and why's and when's of the Lord, but I know this. God loves to save 
And there is not a human being on this planet that he can't save. So if we have lost hope, let this just be a morning that, that we allow the Lord to re-encourage us with hope. That the Lord just puts a, a new sense in us of hope that he can and that he loves to. So a renewed ache for the perishing, a renewed urgency for the perishing, a renewed hope for the perishing. Number four, a renewed passion to pray for the perishing. When we mingle a burden, urgency, and hope, one of the things it produces is a pestering and a pleading with the Lord to do these things. For wives to pray for husbands, for husbands, you know, husbands to pray for wives, for people to pray for their neighbors, coworkers, friends, family, sons, daughters. For us to be people who are pleading with the Lord to save. I, hear me on this. If in your life right now you are not praying in a consistent, passionate, sort of systematic and organized way for those who don't know Jesus, I think it's safe to assume this. You have lost your ache. I'm going to say that one more time. If you are not praying in an organized, consistent, passionate, sort of pleading with the Lord way for men and women who are perishing to know Jesus, that is a clear sign in our life that the ache is gone. That, that it's a clear sign in our life that we need to return to Jesus this morning. We need to get back at the foot of the cross and we need to receive grace once again from the Lord. And we need to, to, to receive from the Lord this sort of empowering grace that would help us feel about the world, feel about people like the Lord feels about people. We need to get back right there this morning and repent before him and ask the Lord to change that in us, to give us that this morning. So can we do that? If you're not praying in an organized, consistent way, it's showing you the ache is gone. That a million lesser things have crept into your soul that just aren't eternal big things. And that we need to ask the Lord to restore that. And one of the ways that we encourage all of our people um, to pray for, for those who don't know Jesus yet or are far from God, we just call it a top five. If you're a part of the Stonegate family, if this is your church home, can I just ask you, to put, like today, this would be one application of today's text. Would you please today develop a top five that you will consistently plead with the Lord to pray for, to, that he would save? Top five, just five people in your life that are far from God. Maybe they're in your neighborhood, maybe it's your work, your circle of friends and your family. Five people that you are going to plead with the Lord to rescue, that you're gonna invite into your life, that you're gonna be committed to opening up your mouth and talking about Jesus to. You're gonna pray for five people. Will you, just, will you just apply that like that today and do that? If this is your church home, will you please join us in that? Of praying with passion and urgency for the Lord to rescue and redeem. And fifthly, so, so number one, that we would have an ache for the perishing. Two, that the Lord would restore this urgency for the perishing. Three, a renewed hope for the perishing. Four, a renewed passion to pray for the perishing. And number five, a renewed intentionality to share Jesus with the perishing. Can, can we just make a real simple observation? If we don't open up our mouth and talk about Jesus, people are not going to be saved. If we don't scatter seed, it would be foolish for us to think that like a crop and a harvest should, should grow and be reaped. If we're not opening up our mouth and, and talking about Jesus with people who don't know Jesus, it would be foolish for us to expect the Lord to use us as a church family for the salvation and redemption of others. It would be foolish for us to think that. So can, can we just have a moment where you ask yourself a really uncomfortable question? It's uncomfortable for me too. So let's just all jump into that together. When is the last time you have talked about Jesus with a person who didn't know Jesus? Like just in a real clear and winsome way that you've opened up your mouth and talked about Jesus with someone that doesn't know Jesus. Here's what statistics everywhere will say. About 9.5, so we'll say 19, out of 20 people who call themselves Christians just don't do that. And if 19 out of 20 of the people who call themselves, you know, stone gators, if, if this is your church family, if we don't do that, it would be foolish for us to think the Lord's going to use us. And so if, if your answer to that question is months, years, decades, what a great morning for us to all return to the Lord and repent and ask the Lord to restore that sort of willingness and boldness to go there. 
and to be used by God in these sorts of ways. And when it comes to intentionality, let me just, let me just encourage you. No one falls into consistently opening your mouth and talking about Jesus with people who don't know Jesus. You don't just open, I mean, that just, you just don't fall into that. It takes a, Lord, today, give me eyes for this. I want to see what I need to see. I want to engage where you would have me engage. So I, I think it would be helpful for most of us just to fix our, our negligence in this area, just to say, today, God, give me one. Give me one person today. Give me eyes for one person today that I can encourage, that, that I can ask spiritual questions to, and let's just see what happens. But God, give me a willingness and a boldness. Give me one person today and give me eyes to see it. Um, you know, if you want to take kind of some next step of intentionality, Travis Wyckoff, one of our staff members, he is doing a once a month on a Sunday morning, um, just in one of our services, he's calling it just intentional disciple making, where he's talking about what would be practical next steps in these areas that would be helpful for you just to help our church family become more equipped in these areas of what does it look like to engage in these areas? It's not weird. It's not like, you know, it, to help us do that in a natural sort of a way. So you should sign up for one of those. So every month you'll see that come out in our little handout. Email him, sign up for one of those. Help us become equipped as a church family. We want to create a, a church full of missionaries, amen? A church full of people with a zeal to go there, a zeal to be used by God, a zeal to be verse five. Here's people's condition perishing. Here's the cure, God sovereignly shining a light into their souls. For us to be a church of verse five people, people who are willing to proclaim the good news of Jesus. So I want to end with this. Um, back when I was in seminary, um, I met one of the most awkward guys I've ever met. And I, I got him, uh, I got his name from a friend of mine who said, Rodney, you should go meet up with him. And so I sat down with him. And again, the most awkward sort of, yeah, just awkward. I'll just leave it at that. He was an awkward guy. But I love to meet with him. And here's the reason that I love to meet with him. He was so zealous. I did not know. I mean, he was a 40-year-old Christian at the time. I personally did not know 40-year-old Christians who were that zealous. So I love to meet with him. He's awkward, but I loved it because he was zealous. And he had stories, like verse 5 stories. People are perishing. God shines a light. And I'm right in the middle of that. And I loved it because he was that guy who had story after story of what it looks like to be in verse 5. I, I loved it for that reason. So now fast forward like eight or nine years. And about six months ago, he calls me and says, he lives several hours away. He calls me and says, hey, I'm in the area. I'm going to be over in 30 minutes. And I'm like, oh dear, here we go. So he gets there and uh, he knocks on the door. He comes in. Uh, we sit down at the kitchen table. We catch up for a few minutes and he says, Rodney, he pulls out a piece of paper and he says, Rodney, will you read this out loud? I'm like, see, we are so awkward. Automatically right here off the get go. We've already gotten back there. So he pulls out this piece of paper and he says, I want you to read this out loud. And I want to, I want to read to you what he had me read out loud. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude, life, a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat. But the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea. And with no thought for themselves, they went out day or night, tirelessly searching for the lost. Many lives were saved by this wonderful little station so that it became famous. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding areas wanted to become associated with the station and give of their time and money and effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought, new crews were trained, the little life-saving station grew. Some of the new members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and so poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in an enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members. And they redecorated it so beautifully and furnished it as a sort of a club. Less of the members were now interested in going to sea on a life-saving mission so they hired lifeboat crews to do the work. The mission of life-saving was still given lip service, 
but, but most were too busy or lacked want to take part in the life-saving activities personally. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and the beautiful new club was considerably messed up. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where victims of shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities because they were unpleasant, and these life-saving activities were a hindrance to the normal patterns of the club. But some members insisted that life-saving was their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to, to save the life of all the various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. And they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. They evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. And if you visit the seacoast today, you will find a member of exclusive, or number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, but now most of the people drown. After I read that, he looked up at me in his own awkward, zealous, and very passionate way and said, Rodney... It would grieve me if your, if your church ever became that. I mean, in that moment, just in that awkward moment, it was as if the Lord just kind of came down and reaffirmed for me that that would be an absolute travesty if that happened. So can we as a church family feel that? That is the tendency that, that is the flow, that's the natural kind of way churches go. And can we all get before the Lord on our faces and ask the Lord to make us a life-saving station and that we would have a church full, a church family full of people who are all engaged in the life-saving mission? Can we all beg the Lord for that? Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.